Before we begin, a reminder that nothing on this podcast is intended as a statement of faith, doctrine, or fellowship, and this podcast is not affiliated with any church, school, or calling body. All right, dudes, forgive me, but one more advertisement before we finally get into the show here. I want to talk about Beats for Heartbeats. Beats for Heartbeats uh, was established as a nonprofit organization in 2020, but fundraising efforts in the form of an event, Beats for Heartbeats, began in 2019. The mission of Heartbeats, Inc. is to celebrate the value of every life through the power of Christ. This is accomplished by acting as a conduit to provide support through awareness and fundraising for organizations that aggressively focus their efforts on benefiting abundant life for the most vulnerable, including pro-life and pregnancy counseling, foster care and adoption services, combating human sex trafficking, um, depression counseling, and both suicide and euthanasia prevention. Currently, Beats for Heartbeats raises funds through an outdoor music festival um, which takes place each fall in West Bend, Wisconsin. And this year's event will take place on September 17th at the Washington County Fairgrounds. Performances will start at 2.30 and include him and her worship, who've been on the show a couple of times, Koine the Church Band, Brian uh, from Koine has also been on the show before. They'll also feature Rest. <laughs> Rhett Walker and Sanctus Real. So um, a great ticket. Um, it's going to be an awesome show. Last year's show was an absolute blast. The Grid Up Bros and I will also be there once again, and we'll hope that we'll see you there as well. Mark your calendars for September 17th at the Washington County Fairgrounds up there in Wisconsin for Beats for Heartbeats 2022. We'll see you there. Welcome to the Gird Up Podcast. My name is Charlie Ungemach, and we're glad that you're here. I'll be joined in just a moment by this week's guest, but before that, I want to say thank you to all those who help support the Gird Up Project. All of our content here at Gird Up is available free to anyone anywhere in the world who might benefit from our message, and we want to keep it that way, but we rely upon the contributions of our listeners in order to do so. You will never see any paywalls or exclusive content here at Gird Up. That being said, it does cost money to put a show like this together, so if you find what we're doing here valuable and you're willing and able to do so, please go to www.girdupministries.com, click on the menu, and select Buy Us a Cup of Coffee. That $5 donation goes a long way towards keeping this podcast going, and it helps us reach other men just like you. God's blessings, fellas. Enjoy the show. <laughs> Our guest today is Karen Fisher. Hello. Yeah. Hello. How are you? I'm well, Charlie. Thanks for having me. We're uh, doing a podcast today in the uh, what is this, the Culture Engagement Center up at MLC. So thank you, P. Rob, for letting us <laughs> record in your space today. Um, Karen, you are. Well, what is your role over at? Well, what is CFS? What's your role there? Sure. So CFS or Christian Family Solutions, or some people maybe previously know it as Wisconsin Lutheran Child and Family Service, all one thing. Um, so CFS here, we have um, a couple different businesses, but I work in our Christian Counseling Department. Um, we have uh, just over 100 and some, some counselors throughout the country in various settings. Um, some of them do outpatient work which is just one-on-one work and we build that through insurance to help people with any mental health challenge they might come forward with and then we have a program called member assistance program Uh, essentially that's 
one-on-one counseling as well, either in person or over video. Um, but that's run through like your ministry. So your church might be a member of MAP um, and you might get a referral to us through that. And the church helps, you know, with the financial burden of asking for that assistance. And then um, my world, I do some of that. But then also um, we have what we would call higher level of care groups. So in the Wisconsin offices and the Minnesota offices, we have multiple layers of those for adults and teens. So um, I manage some of the work that goes on with the adults in those groups in Wisconsin, um, but we also have a teen group. We also have um, a group called Strong, which is for 5 to 12-year-olds. So we do a lot of um, what they would call um, intensive outpatient programs um, or child-adolescent day treatment. Those are the types of codes that the state Recognizes. So, so what would you say mm-hmm. that you call the uh, like more intense intensive groups? Yep, intensive outpatient is what we call it for adults, and, and child and adolescent day treatment is for the kids five to seventeen. Okay, and, and just like if what your elevator speech for that program, mm-hmm. like what what's the difference between that and just like regular counseling? So, um, in either of those programs, it's very similar. These are high dose, high intensity groups. Uh, they get together. Um, most of them get together for 12 to 16 hours a week. Um, so this is not one and done, and they have a duration. So sometimes it's about a 6 weeks program. Sometimes it's like 12 weeks, depending on what we're talking about, what we're dealing with. Even longer for some of our child programs where we're really trying to intervene with families, we'll keep them a whole semester in some of those programs. So high-dose intense therapy um, needed in some of those places. All right. So mm-hmm. and your role is is – what is your official title? <laughs> I am a program manager for us. So there are several of us that manage these programs throughout Wisconsin and Minnesota. So I manage the adult growth, we call it, programs in Wisconsin. Okay, so how does somebody uh, get to a position like you're in? Like, what was your path along the way? Yeah, so my path, um, God's a funny guy. I was joking the other day that um, I was here in, in New Ulm last week for the first time in quite a while because when I came here as a student, um, God did not apparently intend for me to be a teacher, which, hey, we all have paths like that, right? And um, so I um, was here two and a half years, and, and, and by all accounts, it was not for me. Like, everybody knew it, including me. Um, so I scrambled. I went home, left a note for my parents saying, you can't make me come back. And we figured it out. And I ended up over at Wisconsin Lutheran College two weeks later. Um, Dean Joel Mischke over there. Worked as magic, and there I was. So um, I have a Bachelor of Arts in Psychology from Wisconsin Lutheran College and a Master's in Counseling Education from um, Concordia, Wisconsin, and I'm embarking on um, a Ph.D. program in Counselor Education from Concordia, Irvine. Um, so you, sorry, I got distracted there. Um, so you uh, clearly, if you were, came to MLC thinking maybe you wanted to be a teacher, clearly mm-hmm. you had some sort of like service and even like um, MLC is the kind of place where it's some sort of like spiritual service even, right? Yeah. Um, but what led you to doing like mental health counseling and things like that? What, like what, what kind of moments along the way put you on that track? Yeah, I mean, I, so I happen to be an adopted person. I was adopted when I was three weeks old and I think, it's kind of my DNA to question how people become who they are, right? So I've always had that nature-nurture question in the back of my mind. Um, I didn't struggle really all that much with, let's say, identity or attachment like some adoptees have to, um, mostly because I won the parent lottery. I mean, <laughs> Jerry and Irene were fabulous, and um, I couldn't – God had, couldn't have chosen anybody better. Um, and so I didn't have a lot of that, which is nice. Um, but I also knew 
um, we had a, in my family, we also adopted um, a boy later. So when I was six, my brother John came to live with us and he was eight. And he had um, kind of a horrific upbringing to that point, foster care and all of those things. And I think that played a big role too in trying to say, hey, um, there are people who are really hurt out here. And I think I can sit pretty long and listen. And I think there's got to be things we can do. Like I, I'm much more about the what can we do than the why. Um, mm. And that that's been an interesting journey because that wasn't how I perceived psychology back in the day. Um, but that is how I perceive it now. And there are lots of therapeutic ways to do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, um, as a, as somebody who was adopted, right, mm-hmm. uh, do you find yourself better able to, uh, I guess you can't really get in anybody else's mind, but do you, do you think that that gives you an advantage maybe even in, in what you're doing now? I think it's just been the passion that drives the education and the experiences, right? So I don't, you're right, I can't get in anybody else's mind and that's not why I'm here. But I also think that it gives me like just that drive and passion to try and understand and tease it out. That's probably more the, the skill. Yeah. Okay. So, and, you, and uh, even in the mental health world, there's a lot of different things you can do. So why mm-hmm. professional counseling specifically? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Professional counseling, um, I put it on hold a long time because sitting across from people one-on-one for eight hours did not appeal to me. I am not really capable of that. <laughs> um, <laughs> it sounds exhausting and probably non-productive. That was my biggest problem with it. I only started doing outpatient individually um, three years ago when I came okay. to CFS. I had always done programs and been in hospital settings, and I was also in college health. So I was at Wisconsin Lutheran College for 10 years. So it was much more programming-based, triage-based. Hospitals are like that. Like That's why I came was, was kind of to take these programs and put them into Christian clinics. And so we've been able to do some of that and expand that a lot. So yeah, I wasn't always driven to the one-on-one, let's help everybody out. I really like skills of gain. So I, I, I like programming in groups and, and that kind of thing. Yeah, well, and, and I've got a little bit of personal, um, I've got a little bit of personal experience. I, I haven't been any, in any programs like that, but a little mm-hmm. personal experience with people that I, um, that I know very mm-hmm. well who have been in through programs like that. And um, in my, just through my eyes, watching mm-hmm. people that have gone through those kinds of programs in a Christian setting versus uh, more of a secular setting, there is a difference between the two. Mm. And so I want to come back to that Good. in a little bit but before we talk. That Got yeah, it. I'll, I'll come. We're gonna come back around to, to that. Um, but you are you are a mom. I am. Yeah, I just got the one. Um, God figured he was enough. Okay, I tell yeah. him that all the time. And um, he and my husband are we call ourselves the cosmic brownie pushers of <laughs> Washington County. They both own distribution routes for Little Debbie. So we have lots of expired like nutty bars in our house and lots of cool stuff like that. So that sounds like a dream. That's what that sounds like. <laughs> it's that not awful. Like an absolute it's not dream. awful. Okay. So, um, you've got, uh, this world at home where your boy mom, right. Yep. And, and, uh, and wife too. Yep. Um, and you got the kind of the psychology world yep. and the mental health world. Do they ever collide or have they, oh, um, yeah. and to what degree? I try really hard. Um, so it's funny when you tell people what you do, right. They always have some, specific question right if you're a pastor they have a question if you say that you're a therapist or a counselor they tend to stop talking right (laughs) really yeah because they'll be like are you are you like analyzing i had the guy on the plane next to me last night um are you analyzing me right now and I'm like, I don't even know what you're talking about. Like, I, I don't know what that means. I'm just and I, for the soda I'm just to come. a gal yeah. on a plane, right? Like, I just want a cookie. That's yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, you know, at our house. Um, they don't do cookies anymore. They do pretzels. And yeah, things, it's right? the snack. But. I think. Um, but at your house. Yeah. For, for the gentlemen in my life, I would say <laughs> they know, right, that there's things going on behind the scenes that they do not recognize as, like, 
psychological tools that I'll employ, but they know it's happening. Um, they've nicknamed it shrink wrapping. <laughs> so like if, if we end up like uh, at the end of the street and my husband some, says something like, this light is always red when I get here, the next time we get through the light, I'll go, oh, look, it's green. And he'll say, are you shrink wrapping me right now? And I'll be like, yep. <laughs> and now the best part is he turned it around on me the other day. I have a strange phobia of taking my car for um, oil changes. And I can't remember what the whole conversation was, but he did it to me. I was like, oh, I think you should face your fear or something like that. And I was like, oh, did you just shrink wrap me? I think you did. Oh, they're learning, though. They're they like through are. osmosis. They're learning. You're gonna, they're going to be like, the. not only are they going to be the cosmic brownie pushers, but they're also going to be helping so many people along the way. No clue. They were doing it. It's great. So, um, yeah. like, does that, here's a, you're going to giggle at this question, but does oh. being a, a psych, a, okay, what, what should I call you? Being a... A counselor, uh, counselor like, okay. a yeah. therapist. Does that make therapist. you like super mom or does it do the opposite? Oh, you'd have to ask my son that probably. <laughs> um, I suppose his experience of his mom is probably different than other people's experience of their mom. <laughs> um, you know, I'm a big, whether it's because I'm a counselor, therapist, we can use whatever term interchangeably for now. Um, whether it's that or it's just kind of my DNA, I'm, the phrase I typically use to describe myself is a cheerleader for autonomy. Um, and I just believe in that a lot. And, and so my job is not advice giving. Rarely uh, will I do that. It's always tease out the ideas you have. And then let's see if those make sense. And then let's see if I can encourage those. Like, that's kind of how it's gone. Just That's just kind of who I am. So I think that would be his experience, but I'd have to ask him. Do you think that attitude is common amongst therapists or it it it's how we're trained to be is it common I don't know um you know in the program I'm entering here for counselor education supervision the PhD level that's our job our job is to um teach people how to lead not push right and so where are we going to to kind of help a person see and reflect and look through um, without imposing our thoughts onto them, which is a very tricky thing to do as a Christian, and I'm sure we're going to get into that. Um, but but that is what we're called to do. It is not advice giving. Most people will come to me and say, "Hey, I have screwed up my life. Tell me how to fix it." <laughs> and that is not Stop what. Stop screwing up your yeah, life. That's how you fix it. Often I say that. <laughs> Stop doing that. Right. Like, but. Um, usually the way that works and it's like anything else right if I tell you to do something you might be resistant to that so I got to be you know smarter than the average bear and try and figure out what's your motivation and how do I get you to that yeah. so it's much less advice giving than most people think yeah, you're 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 that, that that's the way I operate I, I do not tell me what to do yeah. I don't I wish it wasn't that way no, but it just kind of is, like, is so. and I can tell you you know um, most of the time I see people who are coming because they want to be there but there are occasions where you'll, where you'll get people who you know are court ordered to be there and you can tell the difference mm. immediately between those that are really going to want to do something with this and those who are just coming because they were told and that's never the, the most responsive boat to be in do you do you find that um like what is it that make that makes that switch go where it's finally like yeah i do want to be here i do need the help mm -hmm. i do want you know mm -hmm. i do want to make things better is it, it, does it have to be like a big trauma moment of mm -hmm. like a wake up call or, you know, the proverbial two by four of the head or. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it can be both. I, I, I think usually, um, I always say, you know, 
I only get to intersect a person at one point in their life and everybody's on a faith journey, whether they know it or not. But here's the point where I'm intersecting them. And, you know, I hope, I always am hopeful and I always want to believe for them. Um, but, but sometimes I intersect them when they're not able to do what needs to be done. Um, and other times it is the exact point in time where they're ready and able to do the things that need to be done. So it could be that it's a big major thing, but it could also be that it's been a slow leak and their whole life has been affected for a long time. And they've just begun to realize what they're, what they're missing or what's not happening. Um, so any of those things can be a part of it. Um, it's probably, boy, I'd have to think it through, but, but most people, it is a larger event right? At some point, this has kind of gotten untenable. I can't live like this anymore. Um, and, and then they just kind of say, okay, I got to try this. Yeah. Okay. 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 I was just thinking <laughs> about, thinking about, you know, what, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. You're making me think about some specifics, which obviously I don't want to, yeah, it's an interesting, I just never really thought about like what, 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 what is the, because you hear about, like, well, somebody has to, like, go to the emergency mm-hmm. room or something. That's an obvious in, right? But mm-hmm. I guess uh, here's, a, here's, here's maybe the ah. here's the question. Yep. Um, when you say something like um, they're not able to do what needs to be done or they're, like, it, is that a, like, they, they just won't? Like, they haven't arrived at the point of, like, understanding that they need to do something? Or is it, you know, like, something that they, they literally are unable to perform? Is that... Yeah, question makes sense? it makes sense. Um, it will be hard to answer just uh, blanketly. So I'll say okay. it, I'll, I'll try and get there this way. Um, there's a lot of times we know what to do, right? And yet we cannot get ourselves to do it. Mm. Okay. Um, I know that it would benefit me to work out. <laughs> okay. And I am raised by the woman who is the most committed worker outer that there has ever been. I'm not even kidding. However, (laughs) somehow I cannot, right, in air quotes, get myself to the gym. Now, it's not a lack of understanding. um, And it may not even be a lack of motivation. Because when I do go, I actually enjoy it. So there is motivation. It is actually a lack of commitment on my part. So if I put those three together and I'm missing one of them, I can't do it. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So I need all of that to kind of do it. Now, are there things we could do to get those things to shore up so that I would be able to do it? Yes. Right? So I get an accountability partner. I put it in my calendar. I don't let myself wiggle out. I reward myself. Whatever it is that's going to support that, we're going to do that. But if or until those things happen, I can't do it. I'm not. It's, it's, it could be willpower, but it also might not be. Yeah. Do you do you ever do you ever drive yourself nuts just psychoanalyzing yourself? <laughs> you know I, I mean? try really hard not to. <laughs> but when you're in your own brain, I mean, yeah. you know, it's interesting. I had somebody one time. I sat down with a, a like a coach one time, and I've I'd never done this before. We got to the end of the whole process, and she looked at me and she goes, "Karen, I feel like thoughts are your friends." I'm like, <laughs> oh, that's good, but it is true. Like, I like thinking. I like the metacognition of it. It's it's. It's kind of just how I roll. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. <laughs> so this podcast is obviously a podcast aimed at, at young yeah. men specifically. Um, so, um, oh boy, I'm going to find my question here. Make sure I ask the right ones. Uh, it's obviously a podcast aimed at young yep. men. So uh, you are a, a mother of a boy and you have a husband, young right? Man. Yep. Um, and so, 
yeah, sorry, of a young man. He, but he was a boy at one he point. He was a so boy. The question, um, we'll see young men are. Yep. What, what's the uh, uh, from your unique? Because you, you even said uh, your uh, his childhood is probably different than a lot of people's, um, and your perspective as a mom is off is probably different than a lot of people's mm-hmm. too. Um, so as you're watching your son grow up, what maybe is the most difficult part of it as um, somebody in your position, mm. um, and maybe what's the most what was the most rewarding part? Yeah. So I'm going to think about that in terms of, A, um, not knowing where he would want me to go. I'm going to kind of skirt a few things. Okay. So I think that that's fair without having asked uh, to talk about it. Um, The most challenging part and the most rewarding, is that what you're saying? Yeah. Okay. So um, probably another unique feature to this that would be important is that I was a single mom for 10 years. So he and his dad and I were divorced in... Um, so, so there's an interesting wrinkle to that too, that says, um, even if you look at, um, same gender, opposite gender parenting, it's interesting to watch how do young males do when they're primarily raised by women. And, and you could actually find a lot of studies on this that would support the fact that you need, um, you need a female who is probably less mothering, less nurturing, to raise a male, right? Because they they need that um, that that role model to look to. So you needed to find other males. So that was part of part of my journey with him was finding other males, right? Who were the mentors? And and some of them were uh, of course coaches. Um, and he he was blessed with athletic ability, and that was a big part of his life. And and I think that for me was super important to have those those mentors that could do that. And that's true of everyone, right? Whether I have a dad at home that lives with me or a, a stepfather that lives with me or um, brothers or coaches. The other thing that I thought was super valuable about the way um, we raised him was um, he did go to a Lutheran high school, um, grade school, college, um, those things. And, and that was so impactful like even now right I think about um the cohort of boys young men that are in his life you know it's just been um so instrumental to him seeing himself as a as a young man of God too that he sees it in his peers and that's always so important for anybody but I think young men in particular um so I don't know if I answered all those questions there were there were challenges of being a mom with a boy um, there just are, mm-hmm. right? I can't do a lot of the things a dad would do. Um, I also had, I think, a village of families that we were really tight with, and we still are, you know? And um, so that's been, I think, one of the biggest, I, I know he would say, that that community of people, you know, was, was so vital to him, just maturing as an adult, but also his Christian faith life, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Lots of stuff. Yeah, lots of stuff. Um, and, and I'm really putting you on the spot here. Yeah. Um, but if, if you had just like a room full of, of boys with single moms mm-hmm. in front of you, yeah, is there anything you would just blanket say to all of them, like just to mm-hmm. make a statement to them that might, yeah, is there something you, you oh, might throw out there? Such a good question. <sighs> um, trust them. Like, trust each other because I think what undermines parent child relationships regardless is stepping in, you know, and not allowing trust to to happen. Um, Most of the time moms just want to rescue everybody. 
right? That's what we do. So we're going to, we're going to just like dive in and worry about you, which is usually perceived by young men as failure. Like she doesn't think I can do it. So you really have to step back and just trust it even, and then it's manage your own distress about it because it's, this is God's child before it was your child, you know? And, and so stepping back and saying, yeah, I have a role to play and I gotta be faithful about that. Um, but I also have to trust this young man, right? And, and diving in and worrying about him and mowing the, the grass down ahead of him undermines his ability to be a man in the future. And that's a hard thing to do um, when you're programmed to love by worrying. And that's how, how moms typically are. Right? That's how we show we love you, right? We check in, make sure you got there, are you eating okay? Like all kinds of things that just kind of communicate, she doesn't think I can take care of myself. Right. And that's, I think, what I would say now that you put me on the spot. That wasn't a bad answer. I think I, I like it. It's a great answer. I, I think, think it's true. And I think, too, you, you w- without actually really saying it, you also acknowledged um, in your answer that, um, well, just to be completely, you know, candid, this is something that, like, this isn't the way necessarily it's supposed to be. Yeah. Well, it's not necessarily, it isn't the way it's supposed to be. This something is not how God intended broken. families, yes. Right. And so I think one of the battles that we often, just in my experience as a teacher, kind of watching um, some families that have been broken, I think one of the things that um, is, a, is the, one of the biggest hurdles to, to jump maybe in my experience is um, the idea that this isn't, this is brokenness here Mm -hmm. like we're not oh this isn't just okay Mm -hmm. so um when we label it as like okay it's normal it's not a big Mm -hmm. deal then we don't seek out the community we don't seek out the help we don't seek out the things that are going to make the difference in a long yeah um i was talking about it today with um the residence life staff here um one of the things we tend to do when we get into a crisis or a difficult situation is we will minimize 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 because it seems easier to deal with uh, the problem with that is we dismiss meaning, we dismiss truth, and then we act as if these things are not important, like you were saying. And that that creates a whole different line of thought, a whole different line of action, um, and, and it's probably not helpful to minimize big things. Mm-hmm. They need to be dealt with as they are, not just shrunk down so we can get through them and move on. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, so getting more into the mental health world a little bit. Yeah. Um, which uh, is, that's your expertise, right? That's why you're here. So, I guess. Um, yeah, I guess. I mean, I do it for a living. <laughs> um, so the, what's, let's, let's jump back to where we, we kind of pinned it earlier. What is the difference between Christian counseling and, well, I guess, the counseling you'd get somewhere else? Wow. Um, I just taught a course at Wisconsin Lutheran College on that, and still no one knows the answer. So, um, <laughs> I'll say it to you this way. This is just my viewpoint. So there's a lot of different views of Christianity and psychology and where the overlap can be and where it maybe needs to not be. Um, And you think about psychology, like the evolution of it, and it comes from various places like philosophy and science. Um, Current psychology, like, um, really has been built on the scientific model, and that's by design and choice, okay? So this, the psychological community decided if we're going to be a science, we better act like science, therefore we, we're going to operate on the scientific method, okay? So psychology has to prove itself. So it will, it will jump through any hoop that it has to do in order to do that. Now, is there anything wrong with taking 5,000 years of human behavior and studying it scientifically? No. We do that with a lot of things, right? God provides us these experiences. He put us in the world to glean information, um, 
right? The Bible doesn't contain everything we need to know about how to navigate the world. It contains everything we need to know about eternal life and how, and other things. But it, it, it is not exclusive to say we, we should not study human behavior. So that's psychology. Psychology is going to stand there and say there's science behind how people behave and it informs how we should act, think, and, and feel. Um, Christianly, we could approach that many ways. So there's kind of these, like, so there's biblical counseling that says um, we look to the Bible and only the Bible, okay? Um, there is what we might call the levels of explanation theory that says, okay, well, if you're going to talk about biology of someone's brain, that's neurobiology. If you want to talk about chemistry and, and medication, there's that, right? So there's overlap there, but they're, they're kind of just levels that we involve ourselves in. And then there's other types of um, ways that Christian psychology has worked. There's also kind of separation of church and state, right? You have um, psychologists who are Christians, but they do not operate in a Christian way in psychology, okay? So for years, I resisted, that was what I thought. I, you know, if you go to a secular school, even um, Concordia University, Wisconsin, it, at that time, you make the Christian integration your own. That was not something that was, you know, integral to the the degree so i'm a christian who does psychology what does that mean well i treat people well i'm kind i'm christ-like in front of them it's a lot of things but it's not christian counseling and it's not pastoral or biblical counseling so if i want to be putting the two together i keep using the term culturally competent christian counseling because that makes sense in the industry. In the industry, you don't practice something that you're not competent to practice in. So if I want to be competent in, let's say, post-traumatic stress, I have to be competent in that culture. I have to be culturally competent counselor in PTSD. I can't say I'm not, or I am if I'm not. I think that's where we're headed, and I think that's where CFS is headed. We have a um, director of faith integration working on that to say, how do we do this where we can talk scientifically and be believed, but also where we're not denying the truth and power of scripture in people's lives. And so that's the marrying of those two is an ongoing process. And I kind of avoided Christian counseling for years because of that. I worked in secular settings in hospitals. And um, I think part of it was because how do you bridge the gap? If somebody wants empirical information, <laughs> the Bible is not the place you're going to look for that. So you got to build some sort of bridge to help them see both of those sides. And so I think we're starting to see we have in the last two decades a lot more scientific research that will point to spiritual aspects that are helpful. Um, and we're not just going to slap bumper sticker theology onto counseling. That is where I draw the line. Um, so that's another thing that I'm just so interested in and in my PhD program really I'm going to focus on. So we shall see. It is a complicated thought process. Uh, Long do, answer. Do you think, how important is it for somebody who's seeking out, you know, counseling? Mm -hmm. How important, if, if you're a person of faith, how mm -hmm. important is it that the, pers that the person counseling you shares the same faith? It, I, I honestly mm -hmm. don't, this is mm -hmm. your field of expertise. So sure. Is it important? Is it not important? To what degree is it important? To what degree is it important? Um, that depends on who you're going to ask. So there, there would be... Um, so from, well, I'm going to try and stay in one lane. Uh, from the outside world, it would be unimportant. Okay, so 
Has, has psychology as a whole decided that looking at someone's spirituality is beneficial to their mind? Yeah, they've decided that. But, but I could do that, I suppose, with anybody. So, so like working in the hospital, there are assessments we do, and we assess for spiritual um, coping skills, for example, right? But depending on your faith background, those are going to look entirely different, and they will mean something. So an example of this would be when I used to work in the hospital, everybody I worked with knew I was Christian, and it was quite obvious. I would talk about various things. Um, and what would inevitably happen is they would get a, a um, – mentally unwell patient who was devout devout Christian and they would score very high on suicidality assessments because they have no fear of death okay so so a Christian will walk in and say if God took me tomorrow I'd be good with that that looks like suicidality to the psychology world and it's not it's faith-based so there are these nuances that say it it would matter if I understood that I would treat you in a different way. Um, I think we think it's a little less complicated than that, but it's, it's fairly complicated. Um, we're measuring right now at CFS something um, that I think will be really helpful. And, and we use a tool called the R-COPE. Um, and essentially it's religious coping skills. There's 14 of them and we're kind of measuring um, when you lean into your religious skills, do they help you cope with difficulty? So things like, um, I have felt that God intervened in my life, yes or no, right? Like to what extent? Um, and we'll see, I, I think, real interesting and empirical data out of that. I don't know what it will prove yet because I can't go in with an assumption, but um, I, I suspect certain things will happen. Um, and if that's true, right, wouldn't that, another reason to thank God for psychology and counseling being able to be together yeah okay um so uh kind of sitting in sitting in this world a little Mm -hmm. bit um anxiety and depression by many accounts is on the rise right um Mm -hmm. first of all Mm -hmm. what well first of all I guess what is the Maybe what's the, this is just the most broad of broad questions, uh, but what, what is the root of, of anxiety and depression? Like what's going on? I know that's, huge. <laughs> that's like that. It's literally a four year degree to figure yeah, it out. Yeah, right? uh-huh. um, we still don't know. That's the answer. Okay. No, but yeah, what are root causes that you're asking? Yeah. Like where, mm-hmm. where's this coming from? Mm-hmm. And maybe the, maybe the two questions are tied together. Why is it becoming more and more common or, or it seems to be becoming more uh-huh. and more common? Is it really, I guess? Mm-hmm. Um, and why? And, and what's causing this? Mm-hmm. Let me see how I can parse that out. So um, root causes, maybe. Let's start. I'm going to start from a operational lens, like a counseling um, theory lens. And then I'm going to move to like cultural lenses, I think. So from an operational or therapeutic lens, what's happening? Um so there is a, a book called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, and that is written by the American Psychological Association, and it's in review um, to be rewritten. But every time that it gets rewritten, it takes into account um, research, right? So the research then becomes part of the diagnostic, which means as you have more information, you're adding in more diagnostics. So I can look at, so for example, um, the diagnosis, this is not quite where you were going, but I'll give you an example. The diagnosis criteria uh, for um, 
what we would call gender dysphoria has changed over the course of time for various reasons, um, which becomes more inclusive of more people. Okay. So as a clinician, if I'm looking at the DSM, we call it, if I'm looking at that and I'm looking at the criteria you walk in with, there are more criteria now than there used to be. Okay. So just by definition, depression would include more people than it used to. Okay. And I'm required to give you a diagnosis. That's my job because we're treating mental I'm going to say illness in this case. We're going to treat it in the medical model, which means it needs a name. It needs a label. And so people glom onto the label, and now I am the label, right? I'm depressed or I'm anxious, okay? So there's that from like a theoretical lens. Then you have, I think, um, you have a communication lens where um, people just have more access to information, right? You could go Google the DSM right now and just diagnose yourself if you like. And you're going to wander around saying, I think I'm a depressed person or I think I'm an anxious person. People tell me this all the time. Um, And they could be right. They could be, but there's just more information accessible to more people, which makes it easier. Then we have, right, the whole shift in um, even the destigmatization of mental illness challenges. So I'm not opposed to conversation about, hey, what is going on with unwellness in people? Um, but we haven't always lately done a good job of understanding there's a whole gamut of mental wellness that's also going on. I often say to people, you know, there's, there's mentally healthy, there's mentally unwell, and there's mentally ill. Most of us we're, are going to move between those first two on and off, up and down all of our lives. A few of us will end up in the mentally ill category for some period of time or even fewer our whole lives, right? But it, it, that bar has moved to where mental illness is now a part of common vernacular, right? And and you see it almost as a contagion sometimes, um, which is unfortunate, I think, in some ways. I think, you know, we could spend more time, I think, educating and talking because people are aware, which would be great, and I'm good for that. But these labels sometimes, you know, become, they're, they're just salient to the community, and that's hard. Yeah, and that was my follow-up question, is the culture at the moment seems to me to be really flirting with the line between acknowledging versus almost even celebrating yeah. um, mental, not necessarily mental illness, but mental health issues, yes. if you will. Um, is that a good thing? Mm-hmm. I know that's a loaded question that mm-hmm. you can't really answer, but is that mm-hmm. a good thing? Um, and what effect maybe does it have on, on individuals? Well, so from an individual side, right, when we um, accept labels, we integrate those into who we are often, um, and then we act as if those things are true. So think about little kids, right? If you grew up in a family, you probably got labeled somewhere right? You're the Gregorious one, or you're the quiet one, or you're the sporty one. Um, And you take a label and you internalize it and it becomes part of your character. Wouldn't that also be true if we're going to start doing this across the board? Now, do I need to know some of those diagnoses and all the criteria to help someone? I do. I do. But um, what they know and how they internalize that is really important information. Um, Because if they're going to wander around saying, I'm an anxious person, I can't do that. Now we have a whole nother set of problems. And that's what therapists spend most of their time doing is taking a look at what are the things that are interfering in your life? How do we help you with those? So it's fine, but it, but it does seem 
um, a little cumbersome or a little bit too narrow for people. And sometimes they just glom on to those to their detriment. I think just organically, we also have some issues now just in terms of how to manage this. Because if everybody has a mental health challenge, an illness where they need therapy, we cannot handle that. I've been describing it to people as like, there's a tsunami of people coming toward me. And all I'm doing is grabbing the nearest hand and grabbing one at a time. And that is not tenable because what's happening is there are some mentally ill people out there who really need this right now. But I've got all these people flying at me and I can just, I can only grab the ones that are coming, right? Like, and, and maybe we need a different way to kind of categorize or, or triage mm-hmm. that. Otherwise, we're going to end up in just a logistical nightmare, which is kind of where we're at. How do we avoid, so someone that does have like, you know, major depression or anxiety, mm-hmm. how do we avoid um, be letting that become part of our identity? Well, yeah, that's a, um, boy, that's a great question. So everybody's, everybody's going to encounter mental illness differently. Um, and the duration and the length and breadth of that are so personal and unique, uh, to the situation and to the human, um, to their biology. There's so, so many things that are unique about that. Um, that's what good therapists do though, is that they help you see that value and worth outside of yourself. So, Man, what an opportunity, right? Because if my identity has nothing to do with how I feel, <laughs> what I'm doing, if if it all has to do with the fact that I'm a son or a daughter of the king, I gotta, I, man, that's a great identity compared to whatever else I got, whether I'm depressed or I'm, I'm the sporty kid or I'm the one who just got broken up with. Whatever other label I have, my identity is a son or daughter of the king. That's that's where I can park without ever moving. It doesn't matter how I feel or what I think. That is just true of me. So that's why, you know, I get real lit up about that because that identity, um, God's the original psychologist who wrote the original textbook, and the identity piece is very clear. And if, if we can help people see themselves as God sees them, it's so helpful um, to all these other things that are just broken world problems, just after the fall problems, you know. I don't know if that's helpful, but I got I get a little soapboxy about it because people want to soak up these identities and think that they can work them from the bottom. And certainly, we have techniques to help you do that. Um, but if we if we approach them top down with all the core beliefs behind them, then you get stability, right? I can teach you how to manage your emotions. I can teach you how to breathe your way through things. Be mindful. I know all the stuff, right? We we teach all of our people evidence based stuff, um, and that's good. It's not awful <laughs> but it, it's helpful but um but the identity part to me is just mm, so important yeah you know right uh and that leads really well into at least really well into i the what i wanted to do next and i'm just going to read a quote to you Ooh, okay, okay? Yep. and um these are these are things people have said to me personally okay. and i didn't know how to deal with them so i'm gonna throw them Ooh, at you i and, love it and you know obviously there is to a certain degree it it would vary based on the person who's saying it right absolutely um yep. but these are things that i've heard and things mm-hmm. that i've encountered more than once and so i'm just gonna throw it at you and, and see see maybe what you come back see with what here. i think yeah. you do want me to answer like this is what i would want you to do if someone says that or how do you want me um, to answer well pretend i'm saying it you're saying right it now. and i'm yeah. gonna handle it okay yeah, yeah. okay um, so I read my Bible 
mm-hmm. every day. I have a disciplined prayer life, and I still struggle with anxiety and depression. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that Jesus promised. He said um, he'd give rest to the soul right, and a light burden, mm-hmm. and I just can't seem to find it. Mm. Such a beautiful thing to wrestle with. Um, yeah, that's not an uncommon experience, I think, in our office. I think that's probably the experience for most people. Like, I, I've done my faith harder journey, and it's not working. Faith harder. <laughs> you know, and and so sometimes, um, you know, I'm of the approach, not a why, what a, but a what. What do we do now? And um, for most people who are Christian and wanting counseling, that is a very typical response. Um, and there's a couple things. Number one, um, it is not a question of faith if you do not feel. Okay. So... I can have a head knowledge of God and of his promises, and I can know that these things are true and believe them, trust them, lean into them, but not necessarily feel. Okay? There's a great book called Good News for Anxious Christians that explains that. Right? In, in some denominations, that is not true. Okay? They, they would push back on that and say, no, um, theology of glory would say, no, you do need to kind of, I actualize and feel more the presence of God. Um, we would not say that in the Lutheran tradition. We would not say that. What's the name of that book? Good news for anxious Christians. Okay. Um, it's a little bit older. I think it's from late eighties, nineties. Um, but you, but that your head knowledge and your heart knowledge don't line up is not a question of faith. Uh, so often I'm going to start with people and say, I want you to think through the fact that, um, faith is, an exercise a lot of the time and not a feeling um psychology of humans we we often tie together emotions thoughts and actions and if one goes down it'll take the others down so in my exercise comment right if i don't exercise i feel guilty okay and my thought is why can't you commit to stuff so I have this triad of things that are happening, um, and one will cause the other to either conflate or inflate, right? So I want to continue to look at that, right? Because a lot of times people will come in, well, I don't feel close to God. I don't care. <laughs> I mean, he doesn't care. Like, like uh, you don't have to do that in order to know that he is close to you, right? So we're going to lean into where are you able to be the most faithful Christian you can be? Is it a thought, a feeling, or an action? And most of the time, it's an action. I do want you to read that Bible. I do want you to continue to commit to those things. I want you to have that positive image of the future with heaven. Those are all resilient things that I want you to be doing. But but know that there are basic bottom line things that do not change based on how you feel. They just don't. Would I like you to feel better? Yep. Can I guarantee you're going to? I cannot. But that does not mean that you can't live a faithful life as the son of the king, right? And and so we got to get back to those things. Um, it is it is really trying to take the faith harder approach out of it. Um, we we practice these things. We come back to these things. There's a lot of things we'll do technique wise um, to help people. What's behind that? Like, is are there some forgiveness exercises that need to happen, or is there value in using lament psalms to help us kind of? Um, remember our attachment to God even in bad times. There's a lot of techniques that go on behind the scenes that we can use. So address those things. 
I love that you keep saying son of a king the way that you do. <laughs> um, because this has been, this is one of my big passion pieces that I've been, I actually talked about it quite a bit at um, the, what's it called? Men of Truth here oh. at, 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 I was blessed to be able to present last year at the Men of Truth Conference here in New Ulm. Awesome. Um, and that was one of the things I talked about was identity. And mm-hmm. um, the uh, the idea of, um, like when God, when God looks at me, he, see, he says that I am Ben Hamelech, right? Mm-hmm. The son of a king. Mm-hmm. So the son of the king, right? Mm-hmm. And so uh, one of the <laughs> this this is a, for a different podcast at a different time. <laughs> um, but one of one of the I don't know if I'll ever have the guts to do it, but I think it would be awesome to get a tattoo. It's like a name tag, and it says, hello, my name is, and then in Hebrew, Ben Hamelech. I love it. <laughs> I think that would be sick. I think that would be, be awesome. Super gr- I thought you were going to tattoo your head with a crown on it, but either oh, way, that would that, be awesome, yeah. too. I mean, I don't really have a lot of hair left, right. so distract from the fact that I'm balding. Just tattoo the whole thing, you know? <laughs> that's awesome. I think that's a great idea, too. Yeah, I don't know how well that'll play yeah. if I get, like, you know, called to a really conservative congregation <laughs> or something, but Probably not I'll, great. Wear a, I'll, I'll find some, like, traditional... Like garb, that, Lutheran that, hat. Yeah, like a like a papal hat, except yeah. Lutheran. That might not go. Yeah, maybe not. You know, the other <laughs> thought I was thinking of there too is, um, I don't I don't always go down this bent, but for people who um, have a um, let's say pretty deep faith tradition that's Lutheran, I will do this. Um, I, I often have them think about like like guilt. Guilt tends to be a general theme in terms of depression and especially um, whether it's guilt about something they've done or inappropriate guilt about something that's been done to them. Um, often I will ask, because they'll hang on to it, right? And, and the, the, the feeder, right, um, guilt makes you want to hide. It, it refer to Genesis 2, right? Like it, it, that's what happens, um, guilt, hiding. And so over the course of people's lives, if they continue to do that, the guilt just gets bigger and it becomes insurmountable for them. Um, and often they'll come and we'll start working together and they'll just say, well, I just, I I can't get rid of that. Like I just, um, sometimes I get real abrupt, depends who it is. And I'll just say, well, then I think you have a first commandment problem. They'll kind of look at me like, did she just slap me with the law? (laughs) Right? Like that seems unfair. Come here for this. (laughs) (laughs) That seems so hurtful. But, um, what am I trying to say? I'm, I'm trying to say that grace is for you, right? Um, the grace grace is for you and sometimes I have to speak that with truth and it'll be hey you have a first commandment problem if you don't think that what Jesus did for you applies to you I don't understand that and we'll and we'll kind of work through some of those things sometimes they're therapeutic things we do um that, that have very specific skill sets with them other times they're conversational um and I think, you know, the biggest asset that I have is uh, it's very common that I'm going to be sitting across from you and all I'm going to be thinking is, dear God, give me the words, <laughs> right? Because I don't have them. Mm-hmm. I just don't most of the time, um, you know, so that's, that's maybe a trick of the trade that I just let out of the bag. But I do that all the time, yeah. all the time. Yeah. Well, and I think to your comment to not knowing the words, I think in many ways that might even be a blessing where you can sit back, yep. especially as uh, in a position that you're in with a Christian community. It's in, all right. Well, Lord, you're going to have to lead this one. Yep. Uh, I don't know. And I, sometimes I just don't even know what came out of my mouth. Honestly, I'm not saying it's inspired necessarily. I'm <laughs> just saying I don't know what I just said. I, yeah. I would not have come up with that mm-hmm. on my own. That's not my brain. Yeah. All right, here's the second one. And yep. they're tied together, so okay. there's probably a lot of overlap. Um, but I know that God works all things for my good. Mm. 
I don't understand why he's letting this happen to me. Like, why am I still struggling mm-hmm. with anxiety and depression? And usually the question that goes along with that is, what is God te- trying to teach me that I'm missing? Or why can't I learn what he's trying to teach me? The implication mm-hmm. being, you know, like, I got to do something to, you know, and it might be phrased in a bunch of different ways, but that's kind of the gist of what they're saying is, I'm trying to get out from under this. Why won't God let me get out from why won't. this? Or why won't he take it away? Yeah, right. So that's theodicy, theology of suffering kind of areas, right? Um, if God is good, why does he allow bad things? Um, you know, so uh, again, I'm, I'm trying to make the link between psychology and, and Christianity to say, uh, if we can get to a place of understanding providence the way that that maybe the, the scripture would say it, um, we can... We can look at and we can hold and we can accept and we can look at the difficulties of a broken world and and believe, if not see, right? Um, believe that, that that knitting together or that providing of or that absence of is, is ordained. It's, it's made available because, um, because God works in the world or because he allows other things to work in the world. So if we can find a... Um, hook to hang that on I think that's helpful um this is a space where psychology has divorced itself lately like positive psychology and humanism do not make room for theology of suffering um like the Puritans and the Quakers they were pretty darn good at suffering like they saw that as a psychological advantage in some ways and and we have we have really dangerously um decided that suffering is not profitable um, just psychologically. And, and that's not true. I mean, humanism is set up to say that, right? The point is self-actualization. I'm just supposed to be improving, 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 and everything should just be rosy. And I don't know how the Christian could put those two together and make sense of them. You, you would have to find some, some way to look at this and say, no, this is also um, a part of what God wants for me. Right, so sometimes it is that struggle. Um, there is a techni- there is a set of therapeutic skills that I use, and I use it in a lot of places. And anybody who's met me knows I do this. But that idea of acceptance, okay, it, it, whether I see it as providence or as um, the Odyssey, I it, accepting what's here always makes it more tolerable. Now, do I like it? Do I even want to do what it requires? Do I approve of it? Um, those are all different than just accepting and saying, this is what I am to walk through. It is what it is. Here we go. Right? So a lot of times I am trying to get people in that more reasonable state of mind about it. Or I'm also trying to get them to shrink down the timeline. <laughs> like, I know you think you've been doing this forever, and maybe you have. Right? But that just says nothing about now or the future or what may be. So um, the patience is in shrinking the timeline. So sometimes they were working on that too, which yeah. most people would call mindfulness, but I don't always call it that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, to kind of move into the next phase of this conversation then. Yep. Um, like you said, it's kind of a spectrum. You sometimes are mentally well, sometimes are mentally unwell. But then there's a, there is further down a line that gets crossed mm-hmm. then where it becomes mental illness. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you're in the mentally well, mentally unwell, like we pretty much, I mean, that really is one of the functions of the church is to take care of each other. Right? Yeah. This is why we're a community. This is why I we're families. So. Mm-hmm. Why we surround ourselves with people who love us and want the best for us. Right? Big C church. Yep. When that line gets crossed, though, and we now have somebody in our life who is mm-hmm. mentally ill. Yeah. 
Um, I guess the, the starting question here is how do I, like, what do I do? Mm-hmm. Like how, how do I help? Um, how mm-hmm. do I support, mm-hmm. you know, like whether, whether it's somebody I'm dating, somebody in the, my family, you know, a parent even maybe, um, mm-hmm. just somebody that I'm, that I'm good friends with, you mm-hmm. know, um, how do like, what do I do? Mm-hmm. How can I help? Mm-hmm. Can I help? Yeah. So there's usually two responses I'll give to that that are general enough that we could apply them broadly. Um, number one is listen. Uh, I don't know. I mean, okay. So there are categories of mental illness where listening is not really an option. Okay. Most of us do not encounter that on a general, like most of us don't encounter that in our lives. So like things like schizophrenia, you know, paranoia, things like that, where you can't, you can't really affect someone in those states of mind by listening. Um, they are not capable at that point in time for whatever reason. Okay, many people can be medicated to be in a state of mind like that eventually, but if that's what's happening, um, that just requires immediate medical intervention. <laughs> like that, do not pass go. Figure out how to get a resource to somebody. Right. For most of the, um, let's say, mentally unwell, bent towards mental illness folk, um, listening is number one because what has happened is they've either physically or emotionally they've created isolation, right? They have separated themselves in some way, um, mostly depression, anxiety, social anxiety, borderline personality, you know, um, bipolar disorders. Those are all predicated on some sort of maladaptive behaviors that often, almost always, include separation from other human beings, right? And I am sure that there are a million of psychological studies going on right now about COVID and what it meant. Isolation is not how we were created. Again, see Genesis. So, like, listening, skill number one. Like, everybody's got two ears, right? Let's just listen. Second thing is I always tell family members, um, ask. Just point blank ask. What do you need me to do? Okay. And if they tell you, don't question them. Just do it, okay? So if you were to say to me, Karen, it sounds like you're really doing poorly. You know, things have been really tough for you. What can I do for you? And if I say, Charlie, could you just text me every morning and say good morning? Just do that. Just do it. Because once they've told you what they need, that is how you respond in kind, right? Like, fill a need, be be vocational in front of them. Let Jesus serve them through you. And if they're telling you how best to do that, why would you disregard that? That's what I usually tell people. Listen and ask. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, how do we... The, the temptation sometimes is to become like a... Sa- so, mm-hmm. fantastic answer. I don't have anything to add Too to Too simple, it. I so know. So, I'm just but- moving on. <laughs> Um, uh, it's easy to get a bit of a savior complex. Sure. Um, so how do we, <laughs> how mm-hmm. do we avoid that? Mm-hmm. It's a sharp open-ended question. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think there's two things that go on with that sort of sitting at that mentality probably. Um, one has to do with, with, um, your, your own tolerance of distress, you know? So if I'm sitting across from a loved one and this has been going on for some time and it doesn't seem like it's improving, um, if I don't have enough distress tolerance, I will jump in to fix it for myself, okay? So sometimes we're going to fix it because we just can't take it anymore, um, and somebody's got to do something, right? And that is that is kind of a common thing. Now, do people think of it that way? No, they think they're being helpful. Um, but a lot of times it's, it's actually 
due to a fact of I cannot take it. I, somebody's got to do something. Okay, so there's that. Um, so there, th- that kind of distress tolerance can be a part of it. Um, I, I would also say, right, that um, a savior complex, again, in the way that you're describing it maybe, looks selfless, um, mm-hmm. but often is not. And and so that kind of speaks to that, like, you know, am I doing this to, to for some ulterior motive, right? Um, the, the other way that this becomes a problem is just in terms of resilience. Like, if I think I have to get in the hole with everybody who is broken, um, you can do that for some period of time until you can't act, right? And I often say to people, you got to also understand um, a little bit about stewardship to know that, um, yes, I will go after the one, but I still have the 99, right? Like, so um, I, I have a responsibility to other people, too, as, as this person is struggling, I can do what I can do, um, and I invite them and empower them and autonomously encourage them um, to do more than they're doing, whatever that is, right? If I get in the hole with them, we're both in the hole. Yeah. And, and what do you mean when you say get in the hole with them? So um, a way to look at this is to think about um, limits of empathy and compassion. Okay, so um, there's 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 the mourn with the mourners mentality, right? Which is which is um, sympathetic. Okay, so I can be sympathetic to your your situation, um, and and that's an expression of connectedness, grief, all of those things. In resilience viewpoint or resilience literature, what we're looking at is. Empathy and compassion within limits allows for more productivity. So um, I seem to be, I don't know exactly why, but I could guess, I I score super low on empathy and sympathy on any assessment I take, okay? And I think it's because they confuse the terms sometimes because I really do care a lot, but I don't feel anything you're feeling. So if you were sitting across from me crying right now, I would not cry. It is, I, I think, I think I've done that twice with clients in my whole life. Now, in my personal life, it's a little different. But in my professional life, I can't do that, right? Because I will go in the hole with you and I will not get out. And that is not my role. So so having empathy and compassion within the limits allows me to actually do a better job than if you were my spouse or my son and I get in the hole with you. That's different. Okay, we have a relationship that supports that. I didn't have that relationship with you and there's a good reason for it. That may also be true of friendships, Right? What is it that I best serve this person doing? And it might not be feeling everything they feel, doing things for them, rescuing them from difficult situations. It may not be that. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. What about us? Like if it is a spouse or, a, or one of your children or something, mm-hmm. um, how do you, and, and maybe, the, maybe it's just is the answer you gave, but how do, you, how do I make sure that I don't, like there comes a point where it becomes overwhelming for the caregiver too. Right. Right. So how do we navigate that and make sure that we don't get there? The overwhelm of the caregiver? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or the support system or whatever. Or whatever. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, so each of those is so unique, I think, um, because everyone's frustration tolerance is so different or everyone's, let's say, tolerance of life situations, I would say. So 
there are some people who can function really well um, and still have what we would, you and I might look at and say, wow, I don't even know how you get up in the morning, right? <laughs> like, I don't know how you live with that situation and it's fine, right? Um, and other people, it, it, it just doesn't seem to phase them. Now, there's some things that we can point to to say why that might be. Things like um, compartmentalization or um, they're better at managing overwhelm or they, um, they are less apt to think thoughts over and over or ruminate, right? Like, so there's various hmm, it tasks or um, things that people are doing that protect them. Mm-hmm. from that so uh, a lot of times those protective factors are things we can learn but a lot of us have developed them through osmosis yeah. right that we lived in a family or we had a mentor or a parent or somebody who taught us kind of those gr- those protective things so we don't get as affected right and yeah. other people have not and a lot of times we, yeah we are working with families a lot to say okay i want you to go this far but no farther all right i want you to tolerate this but not that um, I want you to consider this because I think this would be helpful to you all, right? There's all kinds of things that go on um, to mitigate that, but they're kind of unique to the situation. <laughs> right. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I, what, I, what I hear you, maybe read it between the lines too much, but what I almost hear you saying is you need to know yourself Yeah. so that you can, you know, kind of, I mean, so if you, if you are, if you are like uh, a very, very organized person who just can't, you know, like, well, so just to speak to myself personally, sure. as somebody with ADHD, mm. it's incredibly important to have routines and structure, right? And if I don't have routines and structure, I lose it. Like, no, lose it as far as like my head blows up. I mean, yeah. I, I just fall apart. Can't right? do it. So then sometimes if I'm dealing, this isn't necessarily a mental health thing. It's just like when I'm dealing with somebody, you know, or like for when I was a teacher, right? Yeah. I've got, uh, you know, a child or a parent who is just completely unpredictable, mm-hmm. right? That gets to me really quickly, and I just can't deal with it anymore, right? Mm-hmm. And so knowing that when I am dealing with somebody who's really unpredictable, I'm not depending on them to be predictable, if that makes sense, yeah, right? right. And, and that's kind of what I hear There's maybe underneath of what... Yeah, I guess mm-hmm. I, maybe that's... I don't know. I'm just trying to sort through my own thoughts while that's you're good. talking too, I guess. I love but that. yeah, and, and I guess that's kind of where I was going. When I, yeah, now that I think about that... Um, like knowing knowing your own limit so that you don't put yourself in a position where you might even exacerbate the problem because now you it's not necessarily you getting in a hole with them but you're getting in a different hole right next to them almost you like you're throwing I mean? your dirt on their hole yeah <laughs> maybe yeah yeah there's a lot of analogies um right right so so some let's say introspection mm-hmm. some understanding of your character of strengths and weaknesses gifts yeah. and talents yeah super valuable right um and, and a lot of times that is what it is if i if i'm working with families it's okay i need i need this person to play this role or this person to play this role because it comes more naturally to them or um they just have more capacity for every reason um to do that and, and we just got to be mindful of that here's it here's maybe the the, the best question I can muster to, to wrap this up. Yes. Is it honorable and good? Um, or maybe to what extent is it honorable and good to help someone else at my own expense? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I mean, the, obviously it's not beneficial to try and help somebody to the extent where you're losing your own, you know, like where you yourself are now, you know, either jumping in a pit with them 
or digging your own hole. Mm-hmm. Um, but to what extent maybe is that level of, you know, well, it's, it is sex and there's, it's going to take, it's going to be taxing, right? Mm-hmm. So do you understand where I'm going? Do you maybe have? Yeah. Lay on the plane. Give me a question. Um, so, um, is it, I think the temptation often is to just completely give myself, right, and, and not have the boundaries. Mm-hmm. Um, is that actually honorable and good and healthy? I don't, I think, I feel like I'm, this question sounds like I'm leading, in it, leading, but I'm not really. It is a genuine. No, one. yeah, I get I, I think I get it. Um, like, as a Christian, I'm naturally uh-huh. self-sacrificing. Yes. Um. Is it maybe maybe flip the question on its head? Is it a sin to draw the line and say I'm not willing to sacrifice this certain thing, or I'm not willing to go to this extent? Mm-hmm. Well, the answer is no. Um, it, the the explanation of that, I think I have a couple of thoughts. One is, um, have you ever read Vocation: The Setting for Human Flourishing by Mike Berg? No. Need That's to about to go on. right now. About to go on my book list right now um, because he talks a great deal about um, the design of relationship and vocation. In that, um, I am designed and available to to be the mask of God to to have God serve others through me, and that there are ways and means that that occurs. Um, so, for example, um, have you ever? This is his. Totally Mike stuff. Um, have you ever hired a housekeeper? Personally? Yeah. Not personally. Okay. Would you be a, Would it be sinful of you to stop doing housework and hire someone to do your housework? No, no. Why? Why wouldn't you? Well, wouldn't it you would, in my circumstance, I can't afford it, so probably. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, if, if I had the means, it certainly wouldn't be because right. I'm still like tending my field, if you will. Thank you. You answered your own question because because if if there's a space or a place for me to look, I'm looking out saying, who am I supposed to give the love to today in this minute, in this moment? Um, how was God asking me to be available to love other people? Um, and and that is a minute to minute question. So if I'm if I'm looking at my life today and I'm saying I'm here to love other people by listening to this human being, in the next hour I might be here to love other people today by helping with someone with their homework. I might be here loving other people by doing my homework. I might so each of those things then comes through vocation. Um, I like that mentality um, better than what people normally use the word boundaries to mean. Okay, so so um, I like the John Townsend, Henry Cloud stuff on boundaries, and and if you read it, it's it's clear why the boundaries exist. Um, it is such that I can function well in this space. Beyond that space, I will have losses, incremental losses, where I cannot then be vocational cannot be loving I cannot be available I cannot be these things boundaries typically people think of them as like okay here's the fence line and come no further right like I'm not available that is not the point the point is to say here's here's where I can be of service where I can be of love right now how do I do that to the best of my ability and if I'm doing other things that will exclude or preclude my ability to be used to love you 
So it's a stewardship issue then, right? I always come back to stewardship. Every minute of your life is stewardship. How are you going to use it? No pressure. Yeah. But there isn't. I mean. There does not need to be, right? right I can't exactly. get in. There, there doesn't need to be. There does not need to be. God, it, I can't get in God's way. I, this is a parenting tip that I, I would share. I remember, um, again, you go back to my situation. I remember praying over and over that I not get in God's way. And then <laughs> I thought to myself, wow, am I conceited that I thought I could even get <laughs> yeah. in God's way in the first place, right? Like, how is that my prayer? Of course I'm not going to get in God's way. Like, that's impossible. Like, if everything rests with him, all I got to do is be faithful. The vocation of just being, that's all it is. I can't get in his way. He's going to do what he's going to do. You know, so so I think there's just a lot of peace in understanding your role and your responsibility to other people in that way. Yeah, run, don't walk to get vocation. Mike Berg, right now. All right. That that's the name of it. Run, don't walk. Wait, no, I, that is my <laughs> run. Do not walk. This is my advice to go by vocation, the setting for human flourishing by Mike Berg, B E R G. All right. Mm-hmm. I'm going to put those two links. I'm going to yes. put links to those two books. 1517 Publishing. Okay. Oh, yeah. That's a good one. Mm-hmm. Um, I've read a lot of books that they've done. They do yeah. some really good Luther translations, too. Anyway, which would make sense. It's 1517. But I'll put links to those two books down below if I can find them. Yep. Um, and then we'll put some CFS lo- links down below. The Appreciate links for Gird Up will be down below as well. Karen, you awesome. are a blessing. This has been, I, I, we could go on and on. We could, (laughs) we could. I might have to ask you on again. It sounds great. uh, Thanks for the invitation. Thanks for taking the time to do it. Yeah. Thanks for all you're doing. Um, And if I can be of help, just let me know. Will do. God bless. Thanks, friend. This is great. On behalf of all those involved in producing, recording, editing, and distributing this episode, thank you for listening to the Gird Up Podcast. If you'd like to contact us with comments, questions, or suggestions, you can reach out to us at any of the links in the description below or on our website. Please consider supporting the work of Gird Up Ministries by donating on Patreon, shopping at our online store, or making a $5 cup of coffee donation at www.girdupministries.com. Those donations help us make more great content just like this for young men just like you. Make sure you like, friend, follow, and subscribe to Gird Up and all of our guests on your social media platforms and consider leaving a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to the Gird Up podcast so that others can find us and be blessed by our content too. As always, thanks for listening. Now go and be the man that God created you to be. We'll see you next time.